it is so good to be with y'all this morning and being back behind the pulpit. So very thankful for this opportunity to open up God's Word. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to Luke chapter 1. As we continue our Advent sermon series on the five solas, really just glorious biblical truths about how God saves sinners. So it doesn't have to be confusing. Um, These are Latin phrases. Troy just mentioned we're looking at sola gratia, by grace alone. We gather this morning because God has done a miracle in a sinner's life that would cause you to want to come in this packed room and sing songs of praise to the creator of the heavens and earth. And so my aim and hope is to point our attention and gaze upon the one who has moved, who has loved, so that we could love in return. So I want to draw your attention to Luke chapter 1, and a very familiar passage, starting in verse 26 through 38, the birth of Jesus foretold. And so please follow along as I read from God's word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Hear the word of the Lord. The announcement of the virgin birth is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. This was foretold many, many years before this angel Gabriel came on the scene, and that in and of itself 
testifies to a God who is faithful to his promises. Everything that I am attempting to do this morning is to to exalt the God who made it possible for those, all of us, who were once far off to be brought near to him in fellowship and right relationship and communion with the holy God who created the universe. Not only was it a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but this was actually a breaking into reality, into history, which displays the grace of God. Out of all the billions of babies that have been born throughout human history, only one person came into the world like this. I think it's good for us to just think about the author of this gospel, Luke. Luke was a doctor by trade. He was a doctor, and although medicine has obviously come a long way, first century folk like him and others knew every bit as well as we do today how a baby is produced. And Luke testifies to Jesus' conception being supernatural. And I think a lot of times we kind of just gloss over. We've heard the story so many times. For a, a virgin to become pregnant without a man is a miraculous event, supernatural. Something that has to happen outside. And only God is able to do something that is impossible, as we see in our passage. What is impossible is possible for God. And so Luke testifies to Jesus' conception being this supernatural conception. And what I want to emphasize here, what I I want us to not miss, is this is a one-sided episode, event, causation. Meaning, if God had not moved, there there would be no Advent story. God needed to break in to human history in order to accomplish something that was otherwise impossible. No other way to the Father, because of our sin, would it be possible for us to approach him. And yet, God breaks in, and when you read the birth of Jesus foretold by the angel Gabriel, it should, for all of us, stir up excitement to know that the God of the universe, the King of kings and Lord of lords who we have no right to approach because of his holiness and justice, has actually opened up a way for us to come. The birth of Christ the ESV that I'm reading from translates Luke 1:28, "Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you." But you could just as accurately say, "Greetings." This is Gabriel talking to Mary. "Greetings, one to whom the Lord has shown grace. The Lord has shown his kindness." This is what we're, what we're working towards as we're looking at this particular sola, sola gratia, grace alone. 
we need to just spend just, just a moment thinking about Mary. This favored one does not mean that she was someone who acted in such a way that God then said, because she's like this, I'm going to then use her or, or provide her this privileged opportunity to be the favored one to give birth to the Son of God. This is kind of the starting point why I like that other translation, greetings, one to whom the Lord has shown his kindness or his grace, is putting Mary in her proper place with all humanity, fallen, sinful, in need of God's intervention. And the solas of the Reformation were really trying to point back to Scripture's truth about humanity because of the fall. And the Roman Catholic Church would take some of those biblical doctrines and begin to change, adapt, create traditions that begin to rise to a prominent place, even to the same place of authority to Scripture. And you see Mother Mary gain that kind of reputation, extra biblical, being raised up to something or someone that she was never intended to be. The favor that has been placed upon her was not a favor because she in and of herself was worthy, but grace is unmerited favor of a God who bestows it upon someone who is undeserving. So this is the foundation to help us understand that God breaks in and provides a way, even using this young woman, to open up the doors for sinners like all of us to experience the forgiveness of our sins. So starting with this greetings from Gabriel, as we work through this particular passage in light of sola gratia, by grace alone, starting with Mary being made a special object of God's grace, and it was all based upon his, deci his decision, helps us then start navigating through this particular passage and looking, at, looking and gazing upon what seems to be unbelievable and is that God provides a way. Verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel understood what Mary was asking. He answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. This child was not to be born by normal biological process. God alone brings something beautiful, salvific out of nothing. We hear Elizabeth in this passage as well. God is the one who brings fertility to a barren woman, a virgin birth in the case of Mary. And so what I want your mind to, to go to, to think about, is the first creation in Genesis 1 and 2. God being sovereign, God being one who is acting on the behalf of, of people, a one-sided act of God, so too when we look from creation to the incarnation, it also represents God's one-sided gracious action in the new creation. 
All of this, I pray, is helping us understand the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I don't know how you have come into this room this morning, this sanctuary, this place of worship, thinking about God, but maybe during this Advent season, you're, you're honed in on the birth of Christ, and rightly so, and you're maybe thinking a lot about God the Son and how he left heaven and became a babe. And all of that is good and right. And I want us to think about that this Advent season. I also want us to think about God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And I want us to think biblically about the triune God. Because I do think that some of us have a skewed view of the Trinity. And we're, we're going to get there, Lord willing. But, but to begin with, I want us to, to think about the role of God in the Advent. The, the breaking in this, this message by Gabriel given to Mary of what is about to transpire. The Reformer spoke of sola gratia. And the heart of the 16th century, the Reformation, the controversy boiled down to being over really the, the linchpin of salvation. How, how is one justified before a holy God? And so there was much writing, much debate. Because the Roman Catholic Church had been teaching in a certain way, and the Reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, were rediscovering the glorious truths of God's word and realizing that they weren't necessarily jiving with what the Catholic teaching was, the doctrine, what, what it was proclaiming. Realizing that there, there were some issues at stake that were mon monumental as they're studying what God's word actually says about salvation and what they've been hearing about salvation. And so, it was never a question of, is man in need of grace? But it was all about, how are we actually defining what this grace is? So, maybe just kind of a simple stab at it. When, you, when you're thinking about grace and, and being saved by grace alone, what's starting to rise to the surface is what the church had already condemned in Pelagius, who had taught that grace facilitates salvation, but isn't absolutely necessary for it. And then it kind of moved towards more of like a semi-Pelagian view, or a, some would refer to it as like a, an Arminian understanding or theory of salvation, that grace was not in and of itself efficacious, meaning it didn't actually produce an intended result. Rather, grace makes salvation possible. It makes the possibility for a sinner to be made right with God. The reformers come along, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, for example, and believed the issue was rather human beings are so sinful that God's sovereign grace must create and decisively fulfill every human inclination to believe and to obey God. I hope you can hear the difference there. One way to say it would be the more 
semi-Pelagian view of, of sin would be, you know, sin affects all of us, but it may give you more of like a limp. It's, it's, it's definitely affected you, but there's still the ability to move towards God. God definitely is working, but there's this cooperation that we move towards him. And what I want you to see from the reformers, their belief from scripture alone describes the human condition as one completely dead, spiritually dead before God. John Calvin expresses the matter in the start of his famous institutes by stating it like this, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves are intimately connected. As we understand more accurately the depth of our problem, so we come more accurately to understand the power of God's solution. The more you know about God, holy, righteous, just, and the more by God's word you know about yourself, totally depraved, dead in your trespasses and sins, the more you start to see, okay, if I am like Lazarus in the tomb four days dead in relation to my, my ability, my spiritual life, it's completely dead. There's nothing I can do to raise myself up from the tomb, spiritually speaking. The reformers were saying, yes, you're hitting on it. Let me Describe from scripture this bondage of spiritual death. Ephesians chapter 2, they open up God's word. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once, you once walked following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now in, at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The bondage of blindness to the glory of Christ. They would turn to a passage like 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The bondage of love for the darkness. John 3, 19 through 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Or the bondage of hatred for the supremacy of God. Romans chapter 8. For the mind, oh, sorry, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is setting the scene, the biblical foundation for the reformers to say, Look, the only way for sinners that are experiencing this kind of bondage, spiritual death, blind eyes, a hardened heart, 
A will that is enslaved and everything anti-God is what we are drawn towards. God must move and move in a miraculous way. Human beings are dead in trespasses and sins, and grace is the divine response to our human predicament. Please hear me. A, a, a mere pep talk or a bit of life coaching won't do any, anything for someone who is spiritually dead. If you are spiritually dead, you are in need of resurrection, to be brought to life. And so the reformers were screaming from the rooftops as they're opening up God's word. If you are spiritually dead, the only way for you to have a heart that beats for God and eyes to see the glory of the kingdom of God is for God and God alone to move, to act, to work a miracle. If you have not read the beginning of Luke's gospel, the, the birth of Jesus foretold, and not responded in grace upon grace, miracle, miraculous working of God to break in and open up a way for me, who is a rebel and wants in my flesh nothing to do with God, who wants to sit on the throne of my own little kingdom, for, for me to change where I once was and now want to worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and have his law now written on my mind and heart, transformed by the gospel, he and he alone gets all the credit and glory. How is one justified before God? It is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through the means or instrument of faith alone, all to the glory of God alone, according to his scripture alone. That's the five solas of the Reformation. Lazarus is that paradigm of God's grace in action what the New Testament would call the new birth or regeneration. If human beings are to receive life, it has to come from a free gift of God. I want you this morning to see in the Advent story, God the Father's gracious disposition towards you. Sinclair Ferguson wrote a, wrote a book that has been so helpful, By Grace Alone. And in that book, he makes this important point. So you need to kind of put on your thinking cap. He makes this important point. God does not become gracious to me because Jesus died for me. Some of you may be going, hold up. That sounds like you're crossing some lines there, but listen to it. God does not become gracious to me because Christ died for me. Jesus Christ died for me because God is gracious to me. This, I believe, is going to help us have a biblical, solid foundation of the doctrine of God. 
some preach Jesus Christ's death on the cross made God gracious towards you. But that's not what Scripture is actually teaching us. John 3.16, for example, and everywhere else in Scripture, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. If you're thinking this morning, man, I, I love everything that I hear in the New Testament about Christ, the eternal Son of God, but as I'm reading through Scripture from beginning to end, I really struggle with God the Father and my relationship or understanding of, of who he is, who I am, and how we're to interact. But, oh man, I love to hear about Jesus. I want you to hear this morning that the Advent story reveals to us God the Father's gracious disposition towards you. As we think about this a little bit more, if you believe that the Heavenly Father becomes gracious to you because Christ did something that somehow obliged him or constrained him to be gracious towards you, then you have placed a wedge in between the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of God the Father. This is important because many Christians have an outlook of love and faith towards Jesus Christ, but are kind of suspicious or uncertain of the grace and love that the Heavenly Father has towards them. Which I believe actually leads to a lack of confidence and assurance as though somehow the father is like hidden behind the son with his maybe fists clenched and the son's holding him back and saying, don't, father, don't strike them. And if Christ wasn't there, then he would lash out towards us. But the Advent story, him breaking into history, him sending his son is actually displaying his gracious disposition towards you. So it's not that he becomes gracious towards you because Christ went to the cross. He is gracious towards you in sending his son to rescue and redeem a people for himself. John Owen wrote this many, many years ago. Very few are those who have a real appreciation of the Heavenly Father's gracious disposition towards them. Think back to the garden and the serpent spitting lies and twisting and thwarting even the character of God to Adam and Eve. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And I think a lot of times we have allowed Satan to twist the character of God the Father in our minds. Like a father who takes his child Online, the week before Christmas, opens up the laptop, scrolls through all of the amazing gifts that, that he can find that would interest his son on Amazon. They spend the whole afternoon, him asking his son questions, what do you like? Scrolling through, making this list, he closes his laptop and says, son, did you enjoy our time together looking over these gifts that, that you want for Christmas? The son's like, yeah. And then his response is, well, don't worry, you're not getting any of them. That is not our Heavenly Father's gracious disposition 
towards us. In the garden, he laid out before Adam and Eve all the luscious trees to eat from, except for the one that he set aside and said, do not eat of this tree. But many times we've allowed Satan to to twist our view of God the Father. May this Advent season, as we look at this glorious proclamation from the angel Gabriel, what God the Father is graciously doing towards a people please hear this, who do not deserve anything good from him. What we deserve is his wrath and judgment. The wages of sin is death. Praise God, we in Christ do not get what we deserve. But his gracious disposition to send his only begotten son so that we might experience life and life abundant. God's grace comes to us through the birth of his son, through Jesus Christ. If sin is the problem, grace is not simply God's benevolent decision to ignore it, to pretend that that it never happened, that the fall never happened, No, grace in the Bible is embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is God's action to deal with sin and its consequences. So God's response is motivated by love and it's shaped by holiness, which takes into account the seriousness of our sin, yet brings back sinners into communion with him. And so when you think about the Advent, I want you to think about grace, yes, by grace alone, but understanding this, grace assumes that tragedy has occurred. This unmerited favor should be these lights going off, there's something wrong with me. I have actually done something. I have offended a God who is holy and righteous, and who should be worshipped, and adored, and obeyed. Yet I have fallen short of the glory of God. I have broken his good and loving laws. I have rebelled and, and headlong run towards things that will never satisfy. Broken cisterns, thinking this God, little g, will provide me what I need, what I want, what will satisfy my soul, all of that is tragic. Grace is God's response to tragedy. It is because the world is not as it should be that God moves. This is a one-sided movement, and God acts. Now, in our passage, in verses 32 and 33, we get a description of God's grace coming to us through Jesus Christ, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. What I love about this particular description of the Lord Jesus is his kingship. God, out of his great love, sends his son, the king, the king to rescue, to defeat, to overcome, 
to lead, to protect, all of that and much more is, is found in Christ and Christ alone. An Old Testament passage, Isaiah 9, 6, the king who is to come will also be called mighty God. This is an allusion not simply to God's omnipotence, all power, in like some abstract sense, but to a particular type of situation that we see all throughout the Old Testament. Mighty God is the God who defeats his enemies. Keep in mind that David distinguished himself as a warrior of the highest degree before ascending to the throne. He was Israel's mighty warrior. If you recall in our study in 1 Samuel, there was a song about him that went like this. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. It's no surprise then that this king who is to come said from the mouth of Gabriel will be like David, a mighty warrior. And this mighty God, the God who will come and fight triumphantly for his people. He is a conquering king. The son of the Most High, born to Mary, is a mighty God king who will conquer the fiercest of enemies, Satan, hell, and death itself. And so when you think about the birth of Christ and you think about grace, may it not be in some abstract form of, okay, grace is giving me something I don't deserve It's not abstract at all. It is found in a person. A notion of grace that was part of the pre-Reformation church with its sacramentalism viewed grace as like a substance that could either be gained or lost. That is not how the Bible defines grace. If you act in a certain way and do a certain things, you may obtain more grace. So the sacramental system, if you did A, B, and C, you would receive these blessings and gifts. Or if you crossed over the line and did something you ought not to do, you may lose some of God's grace. That is not the biblical definition of grace. The New Testament speaks about grace not as a substance of which you maybe can get more or less of, but this is how the, the New Testament describes it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because grace isn't a substance. Grace is a person characterized by his saving work. Doing something for a people who does not deserve it. Allowing someone who is far off to actually experience the great riches of the king of kings. Grace is a person characterized by his saving work. There isn't Please hear me. There isn't anything between a sinner and Jesus Christ. I don't go to Jesus Christ to get grace. I go to Jesus Christ, and as Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, I go to Jesus Christ to get Jesus Christ. And when I've experienced this union with Jesus Christ, all of God's grace and blessings are mine in Christ Jesus. Do you see that it's actually fixed upon a person? The work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ is God's response to this tragedy, this issue of sin. I want us this morning to ponder, maybe anew, your understanding of the triune God. God the Father, 
God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father, out of his great love, mercy, grace, sent his only Son to live a life that none of us could live, to perfectly obey the Father in all things. When you think about you standing before a holy God, if you don't realize that you need a substitute, may this morning be the morning where the light bulb goes off. Goes off. God is holy. You are a sinner. Before a holy God, you will experience his judgment and his wrath. God has made a way. Someone who lived the life you could not live died the death that you deserved to die because of your sin. He bore the curse for you and for me so that we may say, he, the one on the cross, the one that was buried and on the third day, God raised him from the dead. He is my substitute. He is the perfect lamb, spotless, that was laid down for a people to redeem, to rescue, to wash clean by his blood the forgiveness of sins, the gift of eternal life. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit applies that salvation to us. Redemption accomplished and applied. The triune God is so gracious in all that transpires towards us who are so unworthy. Since we are spiritually dead and do not want to seek him, God makes the impossible, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. He makes the impossible possible. All found in Luke chapter 1 and Gabriel proclaiming to Mary what's about to transpire. God breaking through into time and making a way for sinners like us to be redeemed by this little babe who would one day die on Calvary's cross and then on the third day be raised from the dead and now ascended at the right hand of the Father, right now interceding for those who repent and believe, receive this gift and gladly rejoice that the five solas are all pointing to the glory of God. He is the one who has moved, who has loved, so that we may experience eternal life. Brothers and sisters, there is much, much to be thankful for this Christmas Eve. May we now go to the Lord in prayer and then respond in praise and worship. Let us pray. Father, you who are mighty have done a great thing. Lord, I pray that we would be overwhelmed by your great love towards us. That we maybe for the first time ever truly see the glory of your grand plan of redemption. We who are unworthy, we who deserve nothing good, in Christ can experience the greatest of good, joy forevermore, 
sins forgiven, the gift of eternal life, a king to lead us, to guide us, to protect us. If there is any in this room who have never truly bowed the knee before Christ, may they join his followers now in worshiping the one who came from heaven to earth to rescue, to conquer, to redeem a people that is so unworthy. He is worthy and mighty to save. May we respond in praise and worship and adoration. And may this fill our minds and hearts as we go from this place this morning, being a people who truly rejoice in the opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of our Savior. And we pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.